I value this time with you. I appreciate your interest, and especially those of you who have traveled so far for this series of studies. For any small part that I might be able to contribute, I'm thankful too, because going back through my material, reworking it, uh, and trying to reshape it in terms of the modern thrust of Calvinism has been good for me. So I've taught about Calvinism many times. In fact, I've taught preachers groups uh, in different places about Calvinism because it's something we really need to be aware of and careful about. But uh, it's not in exactly the same form that it once was. And that's why I said I have done some reshaping and reforming of the material for this presentation this week. I'm looking to the material on the history of Calvinism this morning because it's very important, I believe, as Jonathan said in the prayer, for us to understand where other people are coming from. And we can understand that better if we look to something of the background out of which Calvinism arose. Calvinism, like any other religious dogma or doctrine, does not come about just uh, accidentally. Quite often, religious notions are a reaction to something else that's already there. And sometimes they're an overreaction. Really, that's what happened with Calvinism. I think you'll see that the more we examine it this morning. The medieval Catholic Church was the touchstone by which everything in medieval life or society was measured. The Catholic Church in medieval times was so dominant that it controlled every thread of the fabric of life. Not just sections of the fabric, but every thread that went through that fabric was touched and controlled for all practical purposes by the Catholic Church. The Church was everything in medieval times. And those who were not a part of the Church literally were nothing. They were viewed in that way, that is, by the higher-ups in Catholicism. Now, that makes for dominance. That makes for power. And any time there's that kind of concentrated power, what comes next? The abuse of that power. And that's what you have in medieval Catholicism. <clears throat> Serious religionists began to survey the situation and analyze it. Some of them had enough understanding of the Bible and enough respect for it that they began seeing some real problems with Catholicism. Some of them began rebelling. Their rebellion was not of the, of the uh, kind that uh, would cause them, for instance, to go out and try to hang the Pope. But they started speaking. They started writing. Special groups of uh, lay teachers, and I say lay as opposed to the clergy of the day. Special groups of lay teachers were even appointed to go out and spread this new message that some of these rebels 
were initiated. And that, of course, is what gave rise to the Protestant Reformation. Very briefly, that's how it all happened. A number of men began seeing these faults in Catholicism, paving the way for Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others. One of the features of Catholicism that was almost inherent in the system was the corruption of the priesthood. Now, it was not designed to be corrupt. That's not why they set it up. But the way they set it up, the powers that they were given in the priesthood uh, encouraged the kind of abuses that developed. And because of that corruption in the priesthood and the abuse of papal authority, most of the protests came about. And, of course, when you think of protests, you think of Protestants. That's exactly how Protestantism arose. It was a protest against Catholicism. (coughs) Another area or front on which this protest centered was whether the Bible is the exclusive province or property of the church. Of course, the Catholic Church believed that it was, and they enforced it. They did all that they could to maintain the Bible as their exclusive property. If you wanted to know anything about the Bible, you didn't just get it out and study it, because the common people didn't have access to it. You had to go to the church, and that meant go to the priest. And the parish priest might not know much more about it than you know. But he was able to have access to higher-ups. And so the church became the solution to all the problems, all the spiritual problems, all the answers that were needed, you got from the church. And that's how Catholicism maintained its power. That's one way that it did so. Uh, This exclusive property or province uh, that the church held in regard to the scriptures was maintained really in different ways. In the first place, the language that was used meant that the general populace didn't have much access to the Bible even if they'd had a copy of it because it was not in their language. It was in the Latin tongue. And so, you you couldn't know much. Because it wasn't designed for you to know, it wasn't intended for you to know much. Not only the Bible itself, but also the services. The Latin Mass. That was before the days of John the 23rd, who of course uh, declared that uh, the Mass could be said in native languages of the people. But, so, when they went, they didn't understand a lot of what went on. All that they understood was the little smattering of information that was passed on to them in catechism class. And, of course, that continued for a few weeks, but you can well imagine that that was scant, that was scarce in relation to the whole Bible. 
or in relation to everything that happened in Catholic services or in Catholic life. And so the common person was really on the outside. He was really lacking in information. If you wanted to know, you had to go to the church. Not only the language itself, but the right of the priests alone to interpret the scriptures, as I've already suggested. And then in the third way, in many instances, the Bible was actually chained to the pulpit. Now that didn't happen all places, in all places, but it did happen in a number of places. And of course that meant that the common individual knew very little about what was going on. There was another area, though, besides that exclusive domain that that the church held in regard to the Scriptures, there was another area that brought about some protests. And that was the system or the dogma of transubstantiation. Men like uh, Martin Luther, for instance, John Calvin, (coughs) Bullrich, Zwingli and some others could not uh, abide the doctrine of transubstantiation. That became a real sore spot. Uh, This was the doctrine that insisted that uh, there was a transformation, a change that took place when uh, the blessing of the priest in the Mass took place. The priest pronounced his blessing and uh, the bread changed forms. It became the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ. And that's the significance of the prefix trans, the preposition trans, on that word transubstantiation, that is a change of substance, a change of form. And the wine, or the fruit of the vine, actually changed. It became the body of our Lord, excuse me, the blood of our Lord. Well, a number of thinking people realized, because they knew something about the Scriptures. These men who were leaders, they knew the Latin tongue. They knew that even in the Latin tongue, there really was no justification in the Scriptures for concluding that the body, or the bread became the body, and the fruit of the vine, or the wine became the blood. They knew that. And so they knew that the church in general was just being hoodwinked on the matter. That's what it amounted to. And so they protested on that basis as well. The system of grace that was taught by the church was also a large problem. The Catholic system, of course, was built upon... uh, Grace, a system of grace, but according to Catholicism, there was a treasury of merit that was accumulated. Now, this treasury of merit was not anywhere located on earth. It was, uh, it was just a treasury of merit that God held. And yet the church, uh, seemed to have the power over it. The church by its uh, decrees and the church by its teachings and practices uh, was able to say when that merit would be dispensed. 
when grace would be handed out. The Bible said nothing about the system of grace or the system of merit that Catholicism developed. Catholicism said, of course, that this treasury of merit uh, consisted of works of supererogation. That word supererogation just means uh, over and above the superior works that were done. Uh, over and above just the normal, everyday good works that people do. So uh, it's not a matter of living your life the way the church says you must live it today, but engaging in some special deed that the church says will uh, cause additional merit to accrue. And so the saints, like St. Augustine and others, their, uh, their meritorious deeds were depended upon to build up or to accumulate that treasury of merit. Well, Catholicism said that grace could be dispensed from this treasury. A little bit handed out here, a little bit handed out there, a little bit handed out somewhere else. Well, how'd you get it, though? How could you get it handed out to you? Well, the seven sacraments were one means. And I've listed those for you here. We're not going to study Catholicism in detail, but you can see what they are. Baptism, Confirmation, Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper we would call it, Penance, Matrimony, Holy Orders, that's uh, the ordaining of a man to the priesthood, and Extreme Unction, that's of course the last rites. Uh, those are the seven sacraments. But Catholicism said that by means of those, grace could be channeled your way if you participated in those. But also sacramentals were another means by which grace could be dispensed or handed out. Now sacramentals, as the name might imply, were just uh, objects that were associated with the sacraments. Objects or actions, like the use of holy water. Holy water was not a sacrament within itself, but it was associated with a sacrament. Ashes that had been blessed, the sign of the cross, priestly blessing, rosary, and candles. So this was another way. Uh, that's why, even to this day, a good faithful Catholic who goes into the Catholic Church will put his hand on the sponge there at the back. It's been wet. It, it has holy water. That's the means by which grace is dispensed. And he'll like the sign of the cross, of course. He'll do various other things. Those sacramentals are one means by which grace is dispensed from that treasury of merit. <coughs> and then a third one, the grant of indulgences. This became quite controversial in the period leading up to the Protestant Reformation. Indulgence does not mean, generally speaking, that you can just buy uh, the privilege of sinning ahead of time. It, it, it's a little more technical than that. But it does mean that you can be, have the temporal punishment that you're due because of your sins remitted. Not, uh, not for instance, for uh, mortal sins. But for venial sins, 
Those are the ones that have temporal punishment. And uh, you can have that forgiven. You can have it remitted by your purchasing indulgences. And of course, as you know, that was the uh, that was the straw that broke the camel's back with Martin Luther when he saw the priest selling these indulgences for the purpose of financing St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. That was when the basilica was soon to be built. And uh, he saw this and he, he, he bucked the tide, you might say. He realized that this was not right. <clears throat> and this remission is granted after the guilt of the sin. And uh, its eternal punishment can be remitted by sacramental absolution or perfect contrition. We'll not get into all of that, but I just wanted you to understand that there's a little more involved in the sale of indulgences than just what sometimes people think. Now, with that background, what are you seeing that Calvinism is going to protest? Calvinism emphasizes no works. Calvinism says... We are so stained by Adam's sin that we cannot think a good thought, say a good word, or do a good deed. Now that's what Calvinism alleges, of course. The Bible doesn't teach that. But now think about it. Calvinism says salvation or justification is not by works. You see what they're rebelling against? The, the historical background is very important, you see, for us to understand the rise of Calvinism. And generally, the rise of Protestantism, because just about all of Protestantism was affected to some extent by Calvinism. Now, that's still uh, true to a great extent, but it's not true the, to the extent that it once was. And we're going to see that also. Well, with that kind of background, there were rumblings against Rome. And these rumblings, of course, were preparatory or anticipatory to what was going to come in the Protestant Reformation. Most of these people that I'm going to mention right now, and that's really all I'm going to do. I'm not going to go into it in much detail. But most of these people remain Catholics. They stayed in the Catholic fold, although they spoke out, they protested. There were some, like Luther, Calvin, and a few others, whose names we would recognize, who did not remain in the Catholic fold. But these did. These were the very early ones. Back in the 1200s, 1300s, and 1400s. But the thing we emphasize about these is, these people had some understanding of the church of the New Testament. And it was with that understanding that they began to speak out because they could see what they were a part of was nothing like what they were reading in the New Testament. This man, William of Ockham, for instance, he realized that the institution of the church, the hierarchy as it had developed, was completely dominant. And it just... uh, it just ruled out or eliminated uh, the role of the individual. The individual had work or had value only as he came to the church to get interpretations 
or to learn what God would expect from him, or as he, of course, uh, participated in the various uh, sacraments, uh, he had to come to God through the church. This hierarchy. Now, I'm not saying that the church in God's plan doesn't play a part. It does. But you know from your study of the New Testament that our access to God is not through the church as an institution. It's not through some hierarchy. It's not through the preacher. It's not through the elders. In fact, Protestantism began to say something that is true. Protestantism began to say, uh, there is a priesthood, yes, but the priesthood is made up of all believers, all Christians. Every child of God is a priest, and that's true, as Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. And that individual, as a priest, is empowered by Jesus Christ to serve, to worship for himself. His service and his worship are not dependent upon what the church says. He has a relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is his only high priest. No human being is a priest or a high priest through whom we must go to God. That's what we're saying when we say that it's not institutional in nature. That is our approach to God is not. Now, does God, did God institute a church? Yes, he did. He began a church. And he gave some organization to that church on the local level. But every child of God is a part of the universal church and must approach God for himself. He must pray for himself. He must live for himself. He must give for himself. He must sacrifice for himself. And his approach is through Christ. That is, it's sanctioned, it's made possible by the high priestly sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us. Well, William of Ockham stressed that the individual had a much larger role than the institution had. John Wycliffe, about whom you've read, I'm sure, the morning star of the Reformation, uh, was strong in his opposition to immoral priests, papal authority, and the dogma of transubstantiation. He was one of the early ones to produce the Bible in his native tongue. And he established the Lollards. Maybe you've read about them, seen their name. The Lollards were lay preachers, as the Catholics would view them, to spread his message. Of course, they would say, who are they? What, What authority do they have? They're not a part of the church. That is, they've not been sanctioned by the church. And they were right. But when Jesus said to his apostles, go into all the world and preach preach the gospel, he initiated uh, a system of teaching that has been handed down from that day till this, of course, that's not dependent upon being sanctioned in some official sense by the church, as we saw. They were. John Huss adopted Wycliffe's ideas 
And of course he aroused the ire of the Pope and was burned at the stake for it all. They insisted, he and Wycliffe both insisted on the Bible first. Not church interpretation, not church dogma, but what the Bible says. And boy, that was tough going. That made for tough going back then. Uh, a man by the name of Savonarola, very prominent during the uh, Renaissance that we're going to mention just briefly. Uh, he preached against the evil life of the Pope and was hanged for it. Now that tells you how serious these opposition leaders were in their works in those days. Well, these, these early rumblings against Rome finally, of course, flowered in what became known in world history as the Renaissance. The Renaissance simply meant a rebirth of learning by emphasizing uh, the old classics. Uh, in the area of art, for instance, it would emphasize uh, uh, the classical artists and their productions. In literature, it would do the same thing. But in religious matters, it emphasized going back to the sources, the classics, the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures. And that's where the emphasis was in southern Europe, the southern part of the Renaissance. Northern Europe was more secular in its approach to the Renaissance, whereas southern Europe, more spiritual, more religious. There was more interest in the Bible and in Christianity. Now, there were some developments during this time of the Renaissance that made it all possible, or that fueled the engine, you might say. In the first, Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. You know, that, that really uh, facilitated the spread of the Scriptures. As I said to you before, there was a time when nobody had a copy of the Bible. Virtually nobody, that is. Except the church people, the church officials. Couldn't have understood it if they did. But as men like some of these we've already mentioned began translating it into their own tongue, the native language of the people, the production of that on the printing press became very important. And so the printing press fueled it. Uh, humanism. That is, the idea that man is the measure. That has a lot of pitfalls in it. It has a lot of uh, uh, aspects that are, that are damnable, really. But the idea of returning to the ancient sources, the Hebrew and Greek sources of the scriptures, that was valuable in terms of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, historical and literary criticism. This was a, a new field, really that was applied to secular literature, but also it was applied to religious literature. And it, it brought about quite a bit of improvement on the allegorical interpretations of the medieval Catholic Church. Medieval Catholicism had looked at everything in the Bible as if it's an allegory. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some allegories there. You know, of course, what some of those are. But when you look at the Bible, everything there is not an allegory. It's not to be viewed just in a figurative way. But that's what Catholicism had done. But with the uh, emphasis on going back to the Greek and Hebrew texts of the Bible, and also the emphasis on 
putting a work like the book of Matthew or the book of Acts or various other parts of the Bible or even Old Testament books in their historical setting. Letting them have a meaning, a meaning that was relevant to that historical setting out of which they arose. That became very important. And likewise, of course, the secularization of the papacy. The Pope became not, not as strong as he once had in the absolute power that he exerted over the church. And uh, so that in itself, uh, you might say, had some good effects in terms of the Protestant Reformation. There are some important men to mention here that we're not going to really get into. I would mention just one or two things about them, though. John Rukland produced a Hebrew grammar and dictionary that became very important in the study of the Old Testament. A man by the name of Erasmus, uh, who uh, really remained Catholic, a lot more Catholic than Luther was, nevertheless published the Greek New Testament. Philip Melanchthon, the brains of the Reformation, was Luther's right-hand man. And then John Calvin. Now we're going to talk about John Calvin a little bit later this morning. So I'll not mention much about him right at this point. But out of this returning to the sources of knowledge, returning to the sources of information... There arose three very important principles that came to characterize the Protestant Reformation. They're valuable principles. Now, they were not always adhered to. They were not always applied in a scriptural way. But they're very valuable principles. One of them is that scripture is sufficient. And we saw that already in various of these men, various ones of these men who protested Catholicism. They said, we need to understand what the Bible says about this. The Bible comes first. Okay? Now that's the, uh, the, that Latin phrase that you'll sometimes see even in English writings. Sola Scriptura. Only the Scriptures. Now that's this principle right here. That the Scriptures must come first. The Scriptures are sufficient. I'm not taking the time, of course, to establish the biblical validity of these principles, because I think you already understand that. Then justification by faith alone. Uh, the Latin statement of that is uh, uh, fide uh, sola, faith alone, faith only. Now, you can see where men like Luther... And Calvin were coming from on this because they had seen so much abuse when it came to justification by works, justification by deeds. They could see that's not so. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now they swung a little too far. They went to an extreme that is not biblically justified. But they were trying to get away from that. And that's why I started back there. For us to see uh, the rise of Calvinism in its historical setting. And then finally, the priesthood of all believers. <clears throat> that every Christian, every disciple, has a direct relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is not determined by any 
universal church hierarchy or organization. Two leaders that I'm going to mention here, Reformation leaders, which stand out above the rest, Martin Luther. And you can see, of course, he began living there in the late 1400s and continued up to the middle of the next century. And then by the, a man by the name of Uldrich Zwingli. Sometimes the H is left off in, in certain sources that you read about him. It starts with the letter U. But he, he lived approximately the same period of time. Zwingli, I want you to notice, held some positions that you would find comfortable. He believed that infants are saved without baptism. Now, Catholicism taught the opposite. Catholicism says that the infant is damned until God infuses uh, grace. And according to Catholicism, that grace is infused when the child is baptized as an infant. You say, well, the child can't even believe. That doesn't matter. It's done for him. And so Catholicism adheres to some parts of Calvinism, believe it or not. Now, they didn't depend on John Calvin for it. They got it back earlier. Do you know a man back in the 300s? Augustine. Augustine. He's the one who really began a lot of this. Now, Augustine didn't do for it, though, what Calvin did. Augustine didn't organize it into a system. He didn't codify it that way. Nor did he publish works in which he gave a uh, systematic treatment to it, like John Calvin did. I'm going to give you just a brief outline of, of Calvin's five books uh, about the Christ, his institutes of the Christian religion a little bit later. So, But Calvin did something that Augustine had not done for him. But... Zwingli said, infants are saved without baptism. That the Lord's Supper is a memorial. In contrast to transubstantiation or consubstantiation. We'll mention the difference between the two in just a few minutes. And whatever the scriptures do not authorize is forbidden. Zwingli early recognized the principle that when the scriptures are silent... We don't have the right to presume to say what would be pleasing to God. Okay? We don't have the right to act in the absence of authority uh, from the Lord. Well, those, those are fundamentally sound principles, aren't they? Here was a man in the 1500s believing these things and teaching these things. You can imagine the trouble that got him into. Because he was opposing much of Catholicism in teaching those things. And you know a number of these leaders could see how these things had application. A number of them, for instance, could say uh, the priestly vestments, the statues, the things like that, they have no place in Bible-centered religion. Some of them got in trouble for it. Some of them left the Catholic fold, though, of course. And they began other uh, works or groups that were offshoots. And that's interesting, too, because the closer in time most of these were 
Catholicism. The more they maintained of Catholicism. But then, of course, some branched off from some of those. A little bit farther down the line, uh, they didn't keep nearly as much of Catholicism as those earlier ones had. Quite interesting to observe that as you go through history. Now, I have mentioned here some different branches of of the Protestant Reformation. And it's in these branches that we began to see Calvinism arising. The Anabaptist movement, for instance. The Anabaptists believed uh, that only adults should be baptized. That is, only those who were capable of hearing and understanding the gospel. Only they needed to be baptized. That infant baptism is invalid. Now, out of that Anabaptist movement came two men who did some very important work up in the New England area of this country, and maybe even up in parts of Canada. I'm not sure about that. But Abner Jones and Elias Smith, they're early associated with Baptist movements in this country. And then the Lutheran branch of the Protestant Reformation, beginning about 1530, of course, with Martin Luther, Now, this group resulted from an attempt just to reform Catholicism. Uh, Lutheranism did not leave all Catholicism behind. It retained certain features. It believes, for instance, in uh, uh, the succession of bishops, Uh, just like Catholicism does and like the Anglican Church or the Church of England does. Now, I will say this, though, that they treat their bishop a little bit differently in Lutheranism than these others do. Uh, But we'll not need to get into that today. The Church of England, a third branch of the Protestant Reformation that we want to examine briefly. This group began, as I'm sure you're familiar, uh, as a political division. It came about... Because of uh, Henry VIII's uh, troubles with wives and offspring. And I've often said uh, that uh, when a group is born or spawned in the lap of political expedience, and that's what happened, political compromise, you can't expect it to rise much higher than its source. You can't expect very much in the way of strong biblical convictions from people uh, who uh, gave their consent to a kind of bland faith to start with. You just can't expect much. And then finally, the Calvinistic movements that we're going to examine in a little more detail later. Uh, The Presbyterian Church, for instance, Uh, And the Reformed churches of Europe, which were later, of course, transplanted over here, like the Dutch Reformed, and just the Reformed Church in America, and the Christian Reformed Church. I was up in Iowa and Missouri on a preaching trip back in October in a couple of meetings, and I noticed there in Iowa there are different uh, branches of Reformed churches, uh, some that I had never heard about. 
But all of them, to some extent, hold to Calvinism, if they have that word reformed on them, because it comes from the Protestant Reformation. The Restoration Movement itself, at the beginning, was somewhat influenced by Calvinism. Alexander Campbell, for instance, he came from a Calvinist background, a highly Calvinistic background. Now, it has to be said to his credit that he he decided to put that behind him. He decided, for instance, that uh, infant baptism was not right. In the first place, the Bible did not teach uh, total depravity or inherited sin. He understood that as he studied the Bible more, and so he decided to put that behind him along with the practice of infant baptism. Uh, He also understood that uh, the individual has freedom of will, that he can hear and respond to the gospel without any kind of super supernatural urge given him by the Lord, no, no infusion of grace, no zapping by the Holy Spirit is necessary for the individual to give attention to the Scriptures and then to respond to it in positive obedience. Campbell came to understand that, but he came out of Calvinism. James O'Kelly, out of the Methodist movement to a slight extent, had been affected by Calvinism. The Methodists even today are not affected by it as much uh, as a lot of the groups are. But And we'll have some things to say about that later. The Baptists, those same two men that I've already mentioned. And then the Presbyterians gave, uh, gave uh, a Barton Stone, you might say, in the Restoration Movement. But there again, Barton W. Stone could see the evils of Calvinistic teaching and practice. And thus he laid those things aside. Something that uh, I mentioned here, it's not my purpose today to get into a lengthy refutation of Calvinism. We're going to talk about that later. But uh, something that I do want to introduce just to get us started thinking about it. And that is this question about when did God predestine? Or for that matter, what did God do? When he predestined. Turn with me please to the book of Ephesians. I want you to look to verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 1. What word do you find there in the fourth verse. Which means the same thing as elected. Alright. Alright. He chose us didn't he? He elected us. Well, isn't that what Calvinism says? Don't they talk about election? Surely do. Look at verse 5 here in Ephesians chapter 1. What word do you find there which is normally associated with Calvinism? Predestined. Now, the uh, American Standard Version says foreordained. And really there's no difference. Well, when you read verses like this, if you're not skilled in the Scriptures, you might wonder, does the Bible teach predestination? Does the Bible teach election? Well, there's no doubt that it does. But it does not teach the brand of predestination and election 
which often is taught by people. God did some predestining, some foreordaining. God did some choosing or some electing. And he did this before the world began. And so when the Calvinists come along and talk about God eternally foreordaining whatever comes to pass, and that's what they believe, the strict Calvinists, they believe that anything that happens has been determined by God to happen. As one man said one time in a debate that I heard on this subject, he said, even if I just wiggle my little finger, it's because God predestined before the world began that I would do that. Now that might sound, sound rather uh, farcical to us. Uh, we might say, God's not going to concern himself with such matters as that. Uh, why does he need to be concerned with whether or not I wiggle my little finger? But that's the extreme to which that doctrine takes them, of course. Now, think about it just a minute. This matter of predestining or foreordaining. Let's divide that word into its parts. Pre and destined. Uh, when you look at the Greek word that's used here, there's a prefix, pro. And all that means is before hand. So it's something that God does beforehand, before the fact, before the act takes place. But then the rest of the Greek term is horizo, a verb. Now when you look at that horizo, you say, that reminds me of an English word, and it should. H-O-R-I-Z-O. Horizon. That's exactly right. So what was God doing beforehand? He was setting some bounds or some horizons that would be operational in terms of his will. Now, does the Bible teach that God set some bounds or some boundaries? Yes. And it teaches that he set them before the world began. But it does not teach that God predestined individuals by name to be among the elect. There's a big difference between the two. So, yes, the Bible teaches a certain brand or certain kind of predestining. A certain kind of electing. And we'll get to that one. The word electing or choosing just means, of course, to pick out. To select from a number. Now, God did some electing. But we're going to notice in this passage today and then maybe in more detail later, the basis upon which he did that electing. Look, for instance, to that fourth verse. Just as he chose us or elected us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, I want to ask a question. 
in respect or in relation to whom did God do the electing or the choosing? He chose us in him. That's right. And the preposition here, in, conveys the idea of in relation to. It's not geographical location, like we say here we are in this room or in this building. But it's in relation to. God chose people to be his own as they were related to him that is related to Jesus Christ. In relationship to Jesus Christ, they could be God's elect, God's chosen ones. So, the Bible teaches, of course, how that relationship with Christ is established. How one enters into Christ. How one becomes a part of Christ. How one benefits from the blessings that are in Christ. So it's in relationship to Christ. That God has decreed the elect shall be in relationship to Christ. Now, going back to the first word, predestined, prohorizo, that is setting the bounds ahead of time. This is easy to understand once you get the idea or the concept that's involved. Have any of you ever refereed any sport like basketball or baseball? Uh, you have, you say? Okay, hockey. Uh, before you go out there, I don't know much about hockey, so I'm going to have to depend on you for this. <laughs> but when you, before you go out there, you know, of course, what the boundary lines are, don't you? They're already established. You know that, uh, you know that if a person, uh, gets outside the line, uh, what is there, some kind of infraction? Of a rule? Offside. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know that because that's, that's what the rule does. It establishes beforehand. It sets the boundaries. Same thing in baseball. Now, when the person goes out there with that chalk marker, whatever it's called, line maybe, and, and lines off the field, puts the first baseline, the third baseline, Maybe he does the batter's box, back there, boxes. Uh, is he determining by name who's going to hit a ball, a foul ball? No. He's not. Is he determining by name who's going to step outside the batter's box? No. But he's establishing the boundaries, isn't he? The horizons. That's what God did. That's exactly what God did. God established the boundaries. The horizons. But he gave man the free will to operate within the bounds or outside the bounds. Now, of course, one of the divine prerogatives that God has reserved for himself is the right of judgment. The right of determining uh, who is deserving of punishment, who's not. Uh, God has the right, for instance... Um, with people in this life uh, to be long-suffering with them. I preached a sermon last night on God's judgment on Sodom from Genesis 19 and 2 Peter 2 and Jude 7. Um, 
Even in the case of Sodom. God was willing to be long-suffering, wasn't he? If Abraham could find those 50 or those 40 and even with the 10. God had some boundaries in mind, you see, even in that matter. And he was willing to operate within those bounds as far as his own long-suffering, his own patience was concerned. But when they could not be found, God had the divine prerogative to exercise judgment, to destroy the inhabitants of the cities, of the plain there. Although at first, of course, he was willing to forego that punishment. Well, that's what God does when he predestines. He sets the boundaries. He establishes the horizons. So yes, there's a kind of predestining that the Bible teaches. But the question that I started to introduce, which I wanted to give this as a background for, when did God predestine? Now, Calvinism looks at it differently, of course. When Calvinism talks about predestination, as you can see right at the bottom of the sheet, on page 2 here, predestination is foreordination applied to the salvation of the individual. Now, foreordination, as you see in point A there in that section, just means the effective exercise of the will by which God determines beforehand what shall come to pass. And that's what the person was talking about when he said, even when I wiggle this little finger. It's because God has eternally foreordained it. But you know, that has nothing to do with salvation. B is where salvation comes into the picture. When foreordination is applied to the saving of the individual, that's what they call predestination. But they raise this question. And by the way, they differ over this question. There's some Calvinists who believe in what's called supralapsarianism. Now those are big terms that I... Uh, that I'm not going to mention much, but I'm just mentioning them here because I want to show you that there are differences among them relative to these matters. These people believe that God made his decrees regarding predestination, that is, who could be saved, who couldn't, before the fall of Adam and Eve. But there are others who believe that those decrees regarding predestination came after the fall. And then the post-redemptionists believe that the decrees regarding predestination came after man's redemption in Christ. And so they're, they're quite different. They're quite radical in terms of the other two. But I'm, I'm pointing this out because on this issue... Not only are there differences among them, but this helps us to understand what they mean by predestination. Some of them believe that before man ever came into being, and certainly before man fell, before Adam and Eve sinned, God issued some decrees regarding who could be saved. Now those are what you might call uh, the extreme Calvinists. Others, though, believe that God issued those decrees regarding who could be saved after the fall of man. 
And then the ones who are the least Calvinistic in their approach are the post-redemptionists. But they mean by predestination something altogether different from what the Bible means. The Bible means that God established the boundaries. They mean that God chose the individuals. That's what they're talking about. I told you earlier that I would give you a very brief outline of Calvin's Institutes. Here they are, near the bottom of the page. We're not going to talk much about them, but i just tell you generally what they're about in case sometime you want to go to them. They're available on the Internet, by the way, if you want to go there and find them on certain websites. You can read. And I'll tell you, sometimes Calvin was not quite as Calvinistic on some things as some of his disciples became. And that's the way it is, too, a lot of the time. But God is creator, God is redeemer, God is sanctifier, and then finally the nature of the church. But these terms that begin here at the bottom of page 2, they're pretty important. If we're going to study Calvinism, it's pretty important, I think, and valuable that we understand what they mean by it. Not what we mean, but what they mean. That way we can understand what they're saying and respond properly from the scriptures. And then when they talk about election, they just mean the act by which God chooses and makes the salvation of an individual effectual according to his predestination. You might say that's just the practical applying of salvation or predestination to that individual. There are some of them who believe uh, in grace alone. In fact, the strict Cal- all the strict Calvinists do. Uh, he's called a monergist in their writings. And if you ever read from them, uh, you, you'll read this term. On the other hand, they're quite critical of those who don't believe that. They think of uh, people who believe that God and man can work together. Uh, they call them the synergists because they believe that they're working together. And that's just the uh, synonym there, or, or rather the prefix S-Y-N, which means together. Now look at total depravity for just a few minutes. Because this is, this is the root of it all, really. This is the foundation of Calvinism. In fact, uh, I think I'll erase this. And do something else here, maybe that will illustrate it better. You've probably studied this enough that you're familiar with the acrostic, uh, the tulip. Well, I've added an S to it because really there's something else involved. And when I get down there in just a minute, you'll understand why it's there. But total depravity is the beginning of it. If you remove that, if you strip them of that teaching, you remove the need for all the other. Total depravity uh, explains why. For instance, God unconditionally elected certain ones unto salvation and others to reprobation. Total depravity is the reason for it. If there's no total depravity, there's no unconditional election. 
If there's no total depravity, you also remove the need for limited atonement. You remove the irresistible grace that operates to bring about the, the saving, the justifying, the sanctifying of the individual who's one of the elect. You, you remove the uh, perseverance of the saints. Why? Because total depravity alleges that the individual has no ability on his own. To do anything. Now think about that. Well, what's the soil in which this kind of tulip thrives? There's a certain kind of ground or a certain kind of soil that gives root to it. And that's something that we often don't think about. But that's the sovereignty of God. Divine sovereignty. Now what do you think about? What idea comes to your mind when you hear that word sovereignty? Total. Absolute. Well, is that true? Does God have absolute control? Are you sure? Makes what? He makes choices. He makes choices. Does he leave choices up to us? Okay. Then his, oh, that's right. That's right. His control is not absolute then in the moral realm, is it? God allows moral beings moral freedom, doesn't he? Now, the, the flower blooms because it has to. The dog barks. Because it has to. The grasshopper chirps, or the cricket chirps, because it has to. And by the way, all of them glorify God. They bring honor and praise to God by doing what God made them to do. The Bible teaches that too, of course, in the Psalms, for instance. But what about us? We don't have to serve God, do we? We don't have to worship God. We don't have to worship anybody. We don't have to live in a certain way. But when we do, that especially brings honor and glory to God, doesn't it? The voluntary service of His moral creatures. And that's what God's seeking, of course. That's why He leaves us that way. That's why He's not made us robots. Like the grasshopper, or the dog, or something else. They do what they have to do because that's the way God's made them. Instinct operates in them. We do what we do because that's what we choose to do. We have volition, will. So, you can get into trouble on this thing of sovereignty. That is, you can say that God is absolutely sovereign. Well, I don't deny, of course, that God has all power, all knowledge and wisdom. He controls all of his creation according to his will. But in the moral realm, in the realm of moral creatures, 
And that's humans, of course. He gives them some freedom. But when you take the position that God is absolutely sovereign, then you immediately and automatically say, man can't do anything except what God enables him to do. You see. But, here's another explanation at the other end of why man is not able. Morally speaking, man's moral nature has been tainted. It's been defiled. It's been polluted, according to Calvinism, by inherited sin. Or what the Catholics call, in their form of Calvinism, inborn sin. And because of that, these others become necessary in developing the system. And Calvin did something there which Augustine had not done, you see. Augustine had written some about this, but he didn't have to have the system organized and codified like Calvin later did. Look here at the section on total depravity for just a minute, please. Total depravity is the inherent corruption of man. Belongs to every part of his nature. That's why they call it total depravity. Now, here's something that we need to be careful about. And as I said earlier, Jonathan prayed in his prayer that uh, we might be able to try to see these uh, people, what, where they're coming from. And of course, as I said, that's why I wanted to see the background out of which Calvinism arose. That explains why uh, they protested and rebelled so strongly against deeds, works, or justification on that basis. But it also helps us to understand that the Calvinist says the individual can become worse than he is. He's not totally depraved in the sense that he's as bad as he can get. They don't teach that. But they do teach that he's totally depraved in the sense that every part of his being is depraved. Mind, soul, body, every part has been touched by the depravity of sin that he has inherited from his forebears. That's what they mean by it. Right, right. Now, that affects his actions. That, that, that causes him to become the kind of person that causes him to sin, for instance. Unless he's one of the elect and God infuses grace, as the Catholics say, or, or sends the Spirit to uh, quicken him or make him alive, as the, as the Protestant would say. And then in the natural man, there is no spiritual good to salvation. Why? Because of this total depravity. No spiritual good. That is, he can't think a good thought. He can't do a good deed. He can't speak a good word to salvation. Now, they don't deny that a depraved person can do some good deed. But that's not under salvation. That has nothing to do with his justification, you see. 
That's right. That's right. The natural man is opposed to God. And of course, you know what passage they're going to use on something like the natural man, like 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, we might have occasion later this week to examine that passage, because I don't believe they even come within the ballpark of, of understanding what that's talking about. I may not either, but I'm going to explain to you what I think it's talking about, what I understand it to mean. And then the corollary of total depravity is total inability. And really we've implied that already when we said that he's unable to think a good thought or speak a good word or do a good deed unto his justification or salvation. And then there are some different points of view regarding depravity that uh, I think it's interesting to note. You know, of course, that... uh, uh, Pelagianism gained prominence back in the time of Augustine. And really, they were his opposition. Pelagianism says that man has plenary or complete ability. Now, that's opposite Calvinism. Total inability is what Calvinism posits, of course. But here is complete ability. Well, this represented the thinking of the Eastern Church. The part that later uh, became the Orthodox Church. These, of course, said that uh, sin was so prevalent because of environmental factors. That is, uh, man's environment had sin in it. And so man was tempted and man participated in the sin. Semi-Pelagianism makes, or rather man makes a beginning to go to God, to seek Christ. He turns to God, but God has to help him out. He has to pull him on the rest of the way because man doesn't have the full ability. Semi-Pelagianism as opposed to Pelagianism. Roman Catholicism, which uh, teaches, of course, a brand or a form of Calvinism or Augustinianism, as they would say it, of course, they would give him the credit for it. God must first bestow the supernatural gift of faith. And then man can carry on to salvation. They talk about God infusing faith. Catholics do in their writings. And it's that infused faith, divinely granted, which uh, causes that person then to carry on to salvation. And then the Reformed branch, or view, Man is spiritually dead and can do no good. He is totally dependent upon the grace of God. Now the question that comes next really just puts into focus, I guess you would say, uh, what these different people believe about why I come to Christ for salvation. Pelagius would say, I came by myself. The semi-Pelagian would say, I started to come and God helped me. Arminians, and I've not mentioned them yet, this is the introduction of them, we'll talk about that in a few minutes too. Arminians would say, God started to bring me and I cooperated. And then Calvinists would just say, God brought me. Are there any questions that you have up to this point now? Things that we've not made clear or talked about. Do they teach that too? 
Did they actually use that, or is that something that was just determined as a matter? I saw it on a Calvinist website not long ago. I don't know how widely they use it. I can't say that. But I saw it. I study I'm studying with the guy now still for it's been a year and a half. And he 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 is all of these. Uh-huh. I've never seen that. And I had I have never seen that. Like he, I learned that as we studied together. Uh-huh. And this everything that you just said there, it is it just became as we studied, I didn't understand where he was coming from. Well, you have to do that. You have to understand where they're coming from. You have to understand what they mean by their terms. And don't say, you believe this, when really that's not what they believe. And he didn't even know Paul the brethren. Well, he didn't tell Paul. He said he did not. I, I, I believe him, but uh, it was just, I just thought if that came from outside looking in, or was that something that came Oh, well, I... Now, it may have been there as a result of their seeing it elsewhere. Uh, I'm not saying that John Calvin used it, but, uh, but I have seen it on Calvin's website. And I can't remember now which one it was. I've looked at a number. Uh, but just be careful. Make sure you understand what they mean by these terms. Think about John Calvin for a little bit this morning before we bring our study to a close. Calvin, of course, was trying to avoid the errors, the extremes of Romanism at a time when a number of people, some even ahead of him, had questioned the underpinnings of Roman Catholicism. And what he developed... Uh, became the Reformed faith of Europe. And Presbyterianism became the form of church government that he and John Knox uh, worked together on. But besides Calvin's tenets, I want us to see him in relation to Martin Luther, since the two of them were prominent Reformation leaders and differed on some matters. So that's why I've placed them here in juxtaposition in the next uh, six points, I guess it is. John Calvin developed a formal system of doctrine. We've already talked about that. His Institutes of the Christian Religion, the five books. Well, Luther, Luther didn't do much of that kind of thing. He didn't have a systematic theology that he wrote. Uh, Luther believed a lot in preaching. Now, That in itself is going to tell you something. Why would you preach? Why would you teach? If God already has his elect ones picked out. Luther, you see, is not as strongly Calvinistic in some ways as Calvin is. Calvin stressed God's sovereignty while Luther stressed justification by faith. Calvin rejected the idea of Christ's physical presence in the Lord's Supper that we've talked about earlier in favor of his spiritual presence in the hearts of participants when they do this by faith, while Luther held to consubstantiation, 
the belief that the body and blood exist by the side of the elements. Now, we've already talked about this other word. What's the other word? That's right, transubstantiation. But now here is another one, consubstantiation. What's the difference? Well, this one has to do with a change. A change of form, a change of substance. Uh, it goes across from one form to another. That was, of course, uh, Luther's idea. Excuse me. That was the Catholic idea. Luther's was the con. Uh, I misstated that. And con just means that it's present along with the other. And that's the Lutheran teaching even till this day. That you have the bread... And then alongside it, along with it, you have the body. Not that one becomes the other, but they're both present there, side by side. And the same thing with regard to the wine or the fruit of the vine. Uh, Not that one becomes the other, as the Catholics teach, but that you have them both there, side by side. Calvin rejected all practices that could not be proved by the scriptures. While Luther rejected only what the Bible did not condemn. Now which of those is closer to what the Bible teaches? That's right. On that matter, he is, isn't he? Just like Zwingli that we talked about earlier. Calvin believed in double election. That is, to salvation and to damnation or reprobation. Luther, however, believed in the predestination of the elect, but said little about uh, any kind of election to condemnation. Now, that's another term that we probably need to introduce here. Reprobation or reprobates. Does the Bible use that word? Reprobate. You remember the passage where it is, or what what was said being said about it? Okay, okay. Reprobate man. Romans one gave themselves over to a reprobate man. Some versions say. Yeah. Oh, First Corinthians nine, I believe. Paul said, lest I myself should be a castaway. I think that's the word that's translated reprobate in some instances, if I remember correctly. Uh, is that right, Bob? Uh, it's a word, though, that means failing to meet the test. And you can see why they would talk about those that God has decided to consign to torment, to, to, to destroy, to damn. They failed to meet his test. Although they don't tell us, of course, what the test was, except that just God in his sovereignty chose certain ones. In other words, I guess he picked, well, it's like picking numbers out of a hat or names out of a hat. If your name didn't get picked, you're one of the reprobates. You're one of the ones failing to meet the test. And then Calvin rejected any idea of merit on the part of the elect and of foreknowledge on God's part. That is... Calvin didn't believe that God's foreknowledge took merit into account. 